0: Sometimes something can feel so important that a person just seems to go on and on about it. Uh, The child who pesters their parents over something they want for Christmas. The teenager who persists in asking if they can hang out with their friends at a certain time in a certain place, but who keep meeting resistance from mum and dad. The wife who's almost at her wit's end. Pleading with her husband to finish the decorating job that he began six months ago, six years ago. Those curtains are intended to be hung across that window, you know. Long standing promises that are yet to be fulfilled. This principle of the break with sin that's taken place if you're a Christian and your new relationship towards the law of God, which comes with that. These truths are so central to understanding what has happened to you, and how your life has been completely reshaped and repurposed by God in Christ Jesus. So important are they that Paul takes quite some time explaining and restating these truths, because he's desperate that we get it. And before he moves on to consider some of the practicalities of all this, and you'll be really pleased, I think, if, you've, if you're not that familiar with the book of Romans, you'll be pleased to see just how honest he is in recognising the difficulties that all of us face in living the Christian life. He provides us with one further illustration of what our new position and standing now is when we become united to the Lord Jesus Christ in repentance and faith. To understand and recognise that the life that you are now seeking to live as a Christian has at its foundation these great truths concerning what it is that God, in his mighty and saving grace, has done for you And continues to do in you. Theologians sometimes speak of things called indicatives and imperatives. They sound tricky words, it's actually very simple. Imperatives are all of the commands and warnings and exhortations in the Bible which spur us on. It's imperative that you do this, be like this, heed this. And they spur us on, firstly, in that which we ought to be, and secondly, in that which we ought to be doing as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we cannot even begin to turn down that road unless God himself has turned us down that road and takes us there. First, we must recognise what God has done. What God continues to do to us and for us and in us. Only then can we begin to grapple with these imperatives which exhort us to live in a certain way as Christian men and women. It's only by remembering these things which... Are absolutely true it's only by doing that that anyone can heed the teaching of the Bible in genuine and loving and heartfelt obedience so for example in chapter 6 what have we seen we've seen great statements of truth which are the what we call the indicatives this is what God has done so for example do you not know That as many of us, as were baptised into Christ Jesus, were baptised into his death. Therefore, we were buried with him. Verses 3 and 4 of chapter 6. Verse 6, our old man, our old sinful self, was crucified with him. That the body of sin might be done away with. These are truths that don't require you to do anything. These are all truths concerning what God has done. Verse 7, he who has died has been freed from sin. These are just clear statements of truth. Verse 10 of chapter 6, the death that Christ died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives He lives to God. These are all indicatives, fixed certain truths. This is what God has done. Then come the imperatives. Based on those truths, now we get these exhortations as to how we ought to be living. But these exhortations can only be given and can only be considered because of these truths. So, verse 4 of chapter 6, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so, we also should walk in newness of life. Verse 6, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. The actual truth is that you're not. And so the exhortation is start living like that. Verses 11 and 12 likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin. You are dead to sin, but recognize it, live in the reality of it. Alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. And so forth. All of these exhortations, these imperatives as we call them, which call for our active obedience, can only be put to us because of what God has done. If we did not have all of those truths concerning what God has done for us, to us, in us, all of these exhortations would be a waste of time because none of us could even begin to contemplate them, let alone live them. So Paul's great concern here for us, for all Christians, is to drum into us, first of all, what it is that God has done for you, to you, in you, by Christ Jesus, so that you see and understand that it's on account of that that you are now being called to live this life. You first need to be in possession of this salvation. You need to know this Jesus as Saviour and Lord. Then you will have a new heart, a new mind, a new nature to be able to start to comprehend this truth, to have the will and the desire to follow after Christ in obedience. And so Paul, in verses 1 to 6 of chapter 7 of Romans, presents us with another picture to help us to understand And my goal this evening is that you get the picture. The picture is designed to teach you what your relationship is now to the law of God as a Christian. Now, eight times in these first six verses, Paul refers to the law. 23 times in the whole of chapter 7. In addition to which, He also uses the word commandment six times, which is also a reference to God's law. So this is key. Now, for the most part, when Paul is talking about law, what he means is the moral law of God, as we find summarised in the Ten Commandments. Now, you could find some Christians today and listen to them and you'd be forgiven ...for coming to the conclusion that the the law of God is to be looked down upon with disdain by the Christian. Law? No, no, no. The Gospel and the Christian life is all about love and grace. Only about love and grace. Being sincere and loving and gracious is all that matters... Well, now, being sincere and loving and gracious, well, of course it does matter, but that's not all that matters. If you go down the road of simply being sincere, loving, gracious, well, on that basis, you can enjoy any kind of relationship in or out of marriage. You may marry anyone, regardless of issues of gender, as long as you're sincere, as long as it's done out of love, as long as you're being gracious. What else is there to stop you? But we have to ask ourselves is that enough? Paul is going to say, Absolutely not. It's not enough not all there is Paul is going to explain how we relate to the law of God now think about it as a Christian man or woman surely these things still are important to you having no other gods before him not creating images with our own hands to worship them not taking the name of God in vain not speaking of him in ways that we ought not to speak of him. Using his Sabbath day properly. Honouring your parents, not committing murder, being faithful in marriage, not stealing, not lying, being, not being covetous. All of these things, I hope I don't need to have to tell you, they all have a vital place in the life of the Christian. We're not free to live any way we want or seems fit to us, purely on the grounds of being sincere and loving. He spent chapter 6 showing that we are still slaves, but in a totally new and different way. Now he'll explain that the law of God still applies to you, but in a new and different way. You are no longer under the law, chapter 6, verse 14, the way you used to be. Things have changed now in Christ. And Paul begins with a simple principle, and we find that in the opening three verses of chapter 7. The basic principle explained the law has dominion over a man only as long as he lives. And then he goes on to give the example of marriage where husband and wife together are bound in the covenant of marriage and the thing that uh, releases a husband or a wife from that bond of marriage is when their partner dies. Now Paul is frequently referring to the moral law of God but here he's talking about the principle of law in a more general sense, the way it affects all of us. Now think about it logically. Any law can only be applied to those who are alive. The requirements to keep any law can only be impressed upon those who are alive. Once we have died, the law is nothing to us anymore because we're dead dead people don't break the law dead people can't break the law because that relationship to the law is gone now laws are to govern living beings to direct them as to how they must live and Paul takes marriage as an illustration now it's important to note that Paul is not teaching here on the subject of marriage and adultery and remarriage in that sense. In this context, he's simply using what everyone knows to be true of marriage as an illustration. Whilst both husband and wife are alive, there is this legal aspect to their union which binds them together. We get married till death do us part. Marriage is a binding covenant between husband and wife. To be married, but then enter into a relationship with someone else whilst you're still married, well, that's to commit adultery. That is to transgress the law. However, once one spouse dies, that death annuls that legal status of marriage that they had. Marriage requires that both spouses are alive. And if one dies, that marriage is ended. The surviving spouse, if they so wish, is now free to marry another. Of course, in reality, it will often be that for the surviving husband or wife, well, in their own heart, in their own mind, they will only ever still be married to that spouse. For many, getting married again is something they could never contemplate. But legally, They are free to do so. Death releases us from the bounds and the reach of the law. It has no hold or authority over you because you are dead. It's it's actually a simple, obvious principle. And we keep that in mind as Paul leads us on in his teaching... And then he says, secondly, it's like a marriage ending as you died with Christ, verses 4 and 5. My brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. Paul pictures your life before you were saved kind of as if you were married to the law of God. Now, it's just an illustration. But he pictures us, if you like, as... Having this relationship with God's law in a particular sense. Uh, It's a little bit like there's this marriage between you and God's law. In this marriage, you are required to do everything that your spouse commands you. To keep the law of God at every point. And on account of that, it proves to be a marriage to you as a sinner of absolute tyranny and despair. You have a spouse who's impossible to please. Because in your sin, it's impossible for you to fulfil all the requirements of God's law. You simply cannot do it in your rebellious, sinful nature. You discover that your spouse is constantly pointing out and highlighting all of your failings and shortcomings. The bar is set so high. Such degrees of truthfulness... And purity and humility and submission are required. Such a lofty and dominant place that God must have in your life. Who can possibly achieve such high ideals? Alongside this spouse there is only continuous condemnation. Now it may be at this point the question is asked... Is this not then the fault of this spouse, the law? Is that not the problem? Surely this spouse is being unreasonable. This spouse is being unfair to ask and expect so much of me. They are asking and expecting too much. That's the question you'll see Paul asking at verse 7, and we'll look at that in more detail next time. But the short answer is no, that's not the problem. And others may object, hey, wait a minute, I never signed up to that. What are you trying to say that I I was in this marriage to the law of God and and that it requires all this of me? I, I never signed up to that. Well, let me explain. The law of God is an expression of God himself in all his holy and infinite perfection. If you or I would know him, if you or I would live in fellowship with him, then we must measure up to his holiness and purity. And the proof of that, were we to do it, would be that we kept His law perfectly at every point. As Adam first did for a time when God created him. To keep the law of God is simply to live a life fully pleasing and acceptable to God. But it's anything but simple. God, because he's infinitely and eternally holy and pure and just and good, he cannot lower his standards to accommodate us in our sin just how low would he have to go where would that ever end if God were to try and accommodate us in all of our sinfulness where on earth would all of that lead to that's just an unthinkable and an impossible solution that God would lower the bar So that it was something that each of us as sinners could live up to. He is, after all, God. We must measure up to him. But all have sinned. All do fall short of his glory. And trying to claim that you never agreed to be held accountable like this is to completely miss the point. Go back and read the opening two chapters and Paul tells you why you are without excuse. The God who created you, the God who brought you into existence, he has the right, he has the authority to decide and declare what he requires of that which is his creation and which wouldn't even exist without him. He has declared that this is his moral standing in terms of your standing before him as God and in your dealings with one another, with your fellow man. To love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and love your neighbour as yourself, which is how the Bible summarises those two tables of the commandments. And so this first marriage that we all find ourselves in, in this illustration Paul is using, it's a very unhappy one because of the law of God. All the law of God will ever do in our unconverted state is show us just how very far away from God we are and how very sinful we've become. The reality is that the law confronts us in our sinful rebellion. And our sinful rebellion often just grows hotter and stronger. And it works like this. A teacher walks into a classroom and unassumingly places a box on the desk at the front, says nothing and just walks back out again. Well, at least half the class haven't even noticed that the box is there. And they just carry on. And the box is simply ignored. The same teacher walks into the same classroom and places the box on the desk. He then calls for everyone's attention. Class, do not look in the box. And walks out. What happens next? Are you going to look or am I? Stand at the door. See if they're coming back. The law itself stirs them up. That's what the law does so often. That's what verse 5 is talking about. It stirs up our sin. Several centuries ago, the Royal Navy were looking for something to help battle the problem of scurvy amongst sailors. Scurvy was a condition caused primarily due to a lack of vitamin C due to their poor diet on board ship. And that was mainly due to a lack of fruit and vegetables many months out at sea when refrigeration was non-existent. Uh, Tinned food had never been thought of and uh, freeze-dried food was the stuff of science fiction. It came to their attention that several European navies Had found a way of combating this problem of scurvy and their solution was to give their sailors sauerkraut that's pickled cabbage to you and me cabbage I don't know whether you like cabbage but cabbage is rich in vitamin C it's rich in vitamins A and K it has potassium it has magnesium it's really good stuff And in the form of sauerkraut, it actually has quite a long shelf life. Because actually, if you pickle things, well, they'll last longer, won't they? It's actually the perfect remedy for life on board ship. But sauerkraut just did not appeal to the palate of the British sailor. And they refused to eat it. What to do? The answer was brilliantly simple. On one of the lower decks of the ship was placed a huge barrel of sauerkraut. And on the side of the barrel, a very simple sign was written. For officers only. Within a week, the barrel was empty and another one took its place. As soon as we are told, don't. But now I want to. (laughs) Yeah. When we're told, only this far. Our sinful passions are aroused. We want to push further. That's the meaning of verse 5. That's what's in all of us. So it's like we're married to the law of God and his law is continually, continually generating this, this response as we kick back against God. We actually become worse because of the law. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is God's salvation to get us out of this awful dilemma that we're in regarding the law of God. The problem in this marriage is not our spouse. Glance down to verse 12 of Romans 7 for a moment. The law is holy. The commandment, holy and just and good. It's not the spouse who's the problem. It's me who's the problem. It's me and my sin who's the problem. The problem in this marriage is you and me in our sin and in our sinful and wicked responses. Whenever the law of God prompts us and we kick against it. And What's God's solution? God's solution is to bring an end to this marriage by bringing about our death. Making us dead to the law in a very particular sense. So that having died in Christ to the law, having had that particular marriage brought to an end, we may then be thirdly raised to newness of life and a new marriage to Christ. That's verses four and six. You've become dead to the law through the body of Christ, his death on the cross, that you may be married to another, to him who raised you from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. Now we've been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. The law of God requires our complete obedience. Still does. Our transgression of that law brings us under God's condemnation and wrath. But we read that Jesus, like us, was born under the law. God required of him In his life as a man what he requires of us as men and women. Jesus as a man had to love God with all his heart and soul and mind and strength. Jesus as a man had to love his neighbor as himself but his was the perfect marriage to the law of God because he kept it perfectly, he kept it faithfully He kept it obediently. He kept it joyfully. The law brought no condemnation upon Christ because Christ never broke the law. It only served to demonstrate how holy and righteous he really was, how he he is. When he died on the cross for sinners, he took upon himself our sins, our condemnation, And paid in full the penalty that we deserve. So that condemnation that you and I are under, under the law of God, Christ has died for that. But as Paul has already stated and emphasised in chapter 6, that's not the whole story of Calvary. In his physical death on the cross, that's what through the body of Christ means in verse 4. We died with him. Our old sinful nature was crucified with him. You died in Christ. And in dying with him, you've now been set free from that condemnation which you deserve. The sinless righteousness of Christ has now been credited to your account. And because you have died in Christ... That former relationship that you had with the law of God, that marriage in which your sins and your, your condemnation were increasing by the day, that's all been annulled. That is no more. Because you've paid the penalty in Christ. He paid the penalty, yes, but you were in him with it. And now you've been raised in Christ, to new life in Christ. And you now are walking hand in hand with a new husband. And your husband is the perfect law keeper, who is now your life and your righteousness. And your relationship to the law of God has completely changed. It no longer hangs over you, condemning you, because that condemnation is gone. Christ paid it. He said on the cross, it's finished. It's done. The transaction is complete. So what now of the law of God? Well, it's still there in all its fullness, in all its glory. But you in Christ are no longer condemned by it, because Christ has dealt with your condemnation. Instead of having to try and meet every letter of the law for your salvation, that was the life of the Pharisees, that's how it used to be, you now are living by the Spirit of God in order that you bear much fruit. The law drives the sinner to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. All the law ever does shine a light on your sin define and explain your sin show you the extent of your sin that's why Paul says the law is like a tutor who leads us to Christ the law shows there is no hope for me outside of Christ I I can't do this I can't live like this I can't live up to this my sinful nature won't let me and the law drives you to Christ It drives you to the grace of God that you might be saved by grace and now in that grace you embrace that law that the law might show you how you now are to live in Christ. That law is how Christ lived. And you now in Christ are living with him, in him, to that law, but no longer under condemnation. That's all gone. It's completely changed. In Christ you now live a life of increasing obedience to the law of God as a direct result of having received this grace and being born again by his Spirit. You get the picture. God's perfect and holy law still stands. But in Christ, your relationship to it is completely changed. The guilt is gone. The charges it brought against you have been dealt with by Christ. Your heart has been renewed. Your life has been transformed. The law no longer rests over you to condemn you. You died to that in Christ. It's now been written in your heart where the word of God urges you to hide it, cherish it, keep it, that you might not sin against him. Whenever Satan may try to whisper in your ear to condemn you, remind him, remind yourself who it is who now is your spouse, whose hand you hold day by day and whose hand eternally holds you. The law now is your delight in Christ, your daily rule and guide, which you seek out in the Bible, which you give yourself to obeying, but no longer condemned by it, because in Christ you've been set free from the tyranny of your sin that you may walk hand in hand with your Saviour in loving and glad obedience the law of the Lord like the psalmist says becomes your delight and you humbly give yourself in willing submission walking with Christ walking in Christ to do his will to do his bidding and how how do you do that? how can you do that tomorrow morning? how can you do that tomorrow through the day? how can you do that through this coming week? Jesus gave us the answer this morning ask seek knock ask him seek him keep on knocking lord this is true of me this is what christ has done for me this is who i am now in christ and i've been set free from that tyranny And I now long to live in glad obedience, walking with my Saviour day by day. Ask. Seek. Knock. He will answer.